finishing up our study in the book of Revelation. I have no idea when we started Revelation. I could go back and look at the messages that uh, Dustin and everybody put online, but I don't remember how long we've been in it. I hope you've been as blessed by this as I have. And it's always exciting to finish up a book. It's always exciting to see where we're going to go next. Like I said, next week we're taking a break and do an excellent Wednesday, but we'll be starting something up here in a couple weeks. And I forgot to mention, we took a break last week, and we had the Seder meal back there in the back with Ephraim Goldstein. Um, glad you guys could make it out for that. So it's been a couple weeks since we've been in the book of Revelation. Just a quick reminder, as we're in Revelation 21 and 22, we're at the end. We're, we're at eternity. And what an amazing thing that is, is to stop and try to think about eternity. You've heard me say so many times, it's hard for our minds to grasp eternity. Everything we do functions off of time. Like I said, there's a clock at the back of the sanctuary to remind me that it is 7.20 right now. And I need to be done at 8 o'clock because your kids need to go home. They need to go to bed because they have to get up and go to school tomorrow. They have to go to go work. Everything we do is centered around time. And so this concept of eternity is such a difficult thing for us to grasp and understand. And when we start reading about what it's going to be like up there in heaven, it is so beyond what we can imagine. And we have to remember all those passages. Eye is not seen, nor ear is heard. What is restored for us, what is left for us, it goes beyond understanding. You know, Romans 8 says that God's ways are unsearchable. Who can find them out? It's above us to really grasp and understand heaven. And I do believe this, that if, if heaven was so easily understood, then how amazing can it be? Part of heaven being so amazing, it's so beyond our comprehension, it is taking us to a different realm. We can't even grasp it. We look at everything from this earthly realm. Heaven takes us out of that, and that's very difficult to do. Now, with that being said, remind ourselves of Revelation 21 and 22. We're teaching this as eternity. That's the way we're teaching this. If you go back to verse 1 of Revelation 21, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. We're looking at this as new. You will run into some people that will teach this as this is the millennial reign. They'll teach this as something else. I find it hard to do that. I find it hard to say that this is anything other than eternity when I see verses like verse 3 of Revelation 22 where it says there shall be no more curse. Well, there's only one place where there's no curse, and that's going to be heaven. And so I teach this as this is being heaven, but I do want to say there's very intelligent people out there that are going to teach us a little differently, and you may run into that sometime. But the way I'm presenting this is we're getting a glimpse into heaven here and what a beautiful picture it is. So we did Revelation 21 two weeks ago. We're picking it up here now in Revelation 22. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the midst of its street and on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the trees were for the healing of the nations. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. They shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. There shall be no light there. They need no lamp, nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. Now, I just want to remind you, two weeks ago, we started our teaching on heaven. And we start out with, what do we know about heaven? So we went through what we know about it. And if you weren't with us, I encourage you to go back and get a copy of that or listen to it online. Because there's so many things about heaven that we just speculate, guess, or to be quite honest, we kind of make it up a little bit. Some of those examples are that we become angels when we go to heaven, etc. Those things aren't biblically true. So what we're going to do is we're going to stick with what we know. What does the scripture say here? Well, what we see going on in heaven, verse 1, is this river. 
Now, in the Bible, rivers have always talked about this idea of life and the beauty of it. And there's such amazing verses that deal with this idea of the beauty of water and the peace of God that comes with that and what that means and what that represents. And it's just so amazing to stop and look. So amazing to stop and look at some of these passages here. And you don't need to turn there. I'll just go ahead and read them to you. But we sing some of these songs as kids that we have peace like a river, etc. Listen to just a couple passages here out of the book of Isaiah. It says, oh, that you had heeded my commandments, then your peace would have been like a river. And your righteousness like the waves of the sea. That's Isaiah 48, 18. Peace like a river. One of my favorite things to do, and I've mentioned this before, is I love going near bodies of water. I especially love going into Deshler and just the reservoir. It's a time of just quietness. I can still my heart before the Lord, spend time in prayer. There's just something about the water and what that represents, the peace like a river. Isaiah 66, 12 says this, For thus says the Lord, Behold, I will extend peace to her like a river, the glory of the Gentiles like a flowing stream. Then you shall feed on her sides. You shall be carried and be dandled on her knees. There's the idea again, the peace like the river. So when you see this river up in heaven, understand the biblical symbolism of this, that it's supposed to represent peace. So there's your first thing. Now, is it a literal river? I sure believe it's also a literal river. I believe there's going to be a literal body of water and going on, and it's going to be pure. Look at it, verse 1. River, water of life, pure, clear as crystal coming from the throne of God. Now, we talked about this during the millennial reign, if you remember correctly. When Jesus Christ returns at the second coming, he sets foot on the Mount of Olives. He splits the Mount of Olives. And a river comes out of it. This is all in Zechariah 14. And this river flows down to the Dead Sea, and it turns the Dead Sea into the Alive Sea. It's amazing. Absolutely amazing. So that's why some people say, well, this must be the millennial reign. Now, I think the millennial reign is just giving you a taste a small picture of what heaven may be like. Because I think this river in heaven is going to be like nothing we have ever seen before. It's absolutely fascinating. We have a creek behind our house, and boys and I love to go back there. And it's just so much fun. And they go back there, and certain times of the year, the water levels down, and they can see all the way down to the bottom. And they're like, oh, Dad, I just want to drink out of that creek. No, buddy, I don't want to go to the ER today. I just, it's not <laughs> worth it today. It looks clean, it looks good, but trust me, it's not. We think we've seen pure before. We see the pictures of certain places in the oceans where you can see the ocean floor. This is going to be something completely different. When it's described as crystal clear, pure like a river, it's amazing. It's amazing. So peace like a river. We got the references there. What else do we have going on? Verse 2. We have the 12 fruits of the tree yielding its fruit every month. People look at month and they start saying, oh, but there is time in heaven. Maybe a time of indicator in heaven. I'm not saying there's not a time indicator in heaven. What I'm saying is time is not going to dictate your life in heaven. That's what I'm saying. And we can also tell by looking at these other passages where there's no sun, no moon, no whatever. I firmly believe that it's going to be one of those things in heaven where it's not going to be like, well, guys, it's 10 o'clock. It's time to go to bed. No. So there's going to be this tree and this tree of life, which bears 12 fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the trees were for the healing of the nations. Now, that phrase bothers some people. Because they say, oh, I thought we were in perfect health. I thought everything was fine. We are in perfect health. Jump back to Revelation 21. Take a look at verse 4. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, no sorrow, no crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. This word for the healing of the nations is a very interesting word in the Greek, and it literally means for the therapy of the nations. This is stuff you get to eat just to be therapeutic. It's just going to be good. It's going to be eternally reviving. This is not something where it's like, oh boy, I didn't get my fruit from the tree of life. I'm dying. No, 
This is going to be the wonderful blessing. So the question comes up, is they're eating in heaven? Jesus ate in his post-resurrection body. I've always liked that passage. Angels, when they came down and took the form of man in the Old Testament, they ate. I've always liked that passage too. So I think we're going to be eating up in heaven, and I think it's going to be something you have never experienced before, and it's going to be absolutely amazing. And so when you read verse 2, for the leaves of the trees or for the healing of the nations, it literally means for the therapy. And that word in the Greek does not mean necessarily that you're sick and have to get better. It's this constant blessing of health that just comes out of it. What else do we got? Verse 3, no curse. Guys, we can't even grasp what no curse means. Just it's beyond us. No curse. I I have a job because of the curse. I as a a sheep need a pastor. So part of that reason is because of the curse. Anytime I go do a hospital visit, we have hospitals because of the curse. We have a police force because of the curse. So many things we do in this world is there because of the curse. The curse is what destroys the world. When awful, horrible things happen and people come up to me and ask, why? Why? I got called today to, you know, to go out to the high school and everything happened and everybody's asking why. And I try to say right from the beginning, I can't answer why. I can't. But I can answer who and that who is God. God loves you. I can answer where. I know where we can go for eternity. Let's stick to the questions we can answer. I can't answer why. But I can tell you this. God's original plan was not for this to happen. God's original plan for us is still to be in the Garden of Eden. God's original plan was for us to be in perfect health. That was never in his plan for the curse. We brought sin into this world, and this world is a cursed, fallen world, and it's absolutely horrible and awful. We like to say phrases like this, that they died of cancer, they died of heart disease. No, they died of sin. Heart disease and cancer just sped up the process. We're going to die because of sin, because of the curse. So where it says there's no more curse, verse 3, we can't even grasp it. I mean, think about the last time you physically did not have a single ache or pain. Think about the last time that you had just a pure moment of joy and peace with no fear, no worry, no anxiety, no nothing. Think about the last time that you could just sit and not think about, oh man, I got to work tomorrow, I got to pay that bill, I got to do the dishes, I got to mow the yard. Everything we do is affected by curse. So when you read verse 3, there shall be no more curse. Man, let your mind run wild with that one. What a blessing that will be. And not only no more curse, but verse 3, the throne of God. There's a focus. The throne, the Lord, the Lamb is on it, and we get to serve Him. Now, once again, when we think of service, we don't think of it from a heavenly perspective. We think of it from an earthly perspective. What's an earthly service? Well, I'm going to do good for the Lord, but it sometimes hurts physically. I'm going to do good for the Lord, but sometimes it strains me emotionally. I'm going to do good, but sometimes it pushes me spiritually. The service up in the heaven in verse 3 is something we've never experienced before. It reminds me back in the Garden of Eden where the Bible says that God gave the garden to Adam to tend it, to keep it. Now, I've joked with you before how much I loathe um, a garden. I just do. God bless you guys. I drive by some of your houses and your gardens are beautiful. Beautiful, And it just makes me angry. But your gardens are beautiful. <laughs> I have never had a garden like that. Dawn has always wanted to have a garden like that. She's always wanted it. And so last year we had, uh, you guys remember Ron Armstrong that used to worship with us. Ron passed away and went home to heaven here this last summer. But Ron lived with us for a few months. And Ron was a master gardener. 
So Ron and Dawn would get together in the evening and they'd play in this garden and that's what they were going to do and they got it all figured out. Ron wasn't in great health. So I would tell Ron, Ron, you play in the garden, but I'm the one out there doing it. Dawn, you want the garden, but I'm the one out there doing it. I hate it. I don't understand why I'm doing this. So the idea of tending and keeping the garden wasn't fun. And Ron would say, oh, James, you just wait. You just wait. When those strawberries come up, and you can go out and pick your own strawberries. Like, Ron, I can buy them at Walmart. I don't, why, I don't have to go pick and everything. No, they're not the same. No, they're better at Walmart. That's what I'm just telling you right now, because I don't have to do anything about it. I don't. And people like, well, you're going to have sweet corn. I, everybody gives me sweet corn all year. I've never gone without sweet corn. So this idea of serving or like Adam tending the garden in the book of uh, Genesis, we can't imagine what that's like. Can't imagine having a garden like Adam had where you have nothing to worry about. Nothing. It's just pure joy to go out there and tend the garden. The idea of serving God in verse 3, you're maybe thinking of service like I am. Oh, boy, for all of eternity, i got to serve God. Yeah. But it's nothing like we've ever experienced before. Verse 4, they shall see his face and his name shall be on the forehead. So remember, name on the forehead, it represents ownership. You are the Lord's. We're going to come back to see his face in a second. Look at verse 5, just the simplicity of this. No night there. Night represents darkness, fear in the Bible. Nothing to be afraid of. They have no lamp nor light of the sun. The Lord God gives them light. Please remember light. If you go back to the order of creation, sun was created day four, but light was before it. It's just a fascinating thing to study. God is light, the Bible says, and they shall reign forever and ever. It's never going to end. This is the beauty of heaven and the beautiful picture of it. But I want to spend some time here on this one. I love verse four. They shall see his face. Let's go on a little tour of the Bible, would you please? Exodus 33. Exodus 33. It's pretty neat. My, uh, my sister-in-law, Lori, just contacted me yesterday and asked about the Bible verses of seeing the face of God. And we were texting back and forth about this. It's a neat little study about seeing the face of God. And you may say, what's the big deal about seeing the face of God? Once you read Exodus 33, it'll start coming a little clearer. I love this type of stuff. So go on me a tour. Exodus 33, let's start in verse 12. So verse 12, Exodus 33, Moses said to the Lord, See you say to me, bring up this people. Okay, remember Exodus, they have brought the Israelites out of Egypt. They have brought them out of slavery. The Egyptians were destroyed in the Red Sea. Moses is starting to have some problems here a little bit. What's going on? Verse uh, 12, but you have not let me know who you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found grace in my sight. Now, therefore, I pray, if I have found grace in your sight, show me now your way, that I may know you, and I may find grace in your sight, and consider that this nation is your people. Moses is saying, I, God, what are you doing? See, I, I don't think there's anything wrong with asking the Lord, what are you doing? But you better have enough faith and respect to listen to his response. See, I run into a lot of Christians that like to question God on everything, and they never listen to what he says back. If you go read the book of Habakkuk, the first chapter in Habakkuk, Habakkuk is asking a whole lot of questions. But he ends it with saying, Niall, wait and listen to your response. So here Moses is saying, basically, what are you doing? But at least he's going to listen. Verse 13, now therefore I pray that if I found grace in your sight, show me now your way, that I may know you and I may find grace in your sight and consider that this nation is your people. And he, meaning God, said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. So God says, I'm going to be with you, Moses. Then he said to him, If your presence does not go with us, do not bring us up from here. 
For how then will it be known that your people, and I have found grace in your sight, except you go with us? So we shall be separate, your people and I, from all the people upon the face of the earth. See, so you see this theme of separation in the Bible. God's people are separate. You know, just throwing this out there, we throw around the term saint a lot. And the problem is saint now has come to mean super Christian. That, that's not what the word literally means. The word literally means separated. That's all it means. So when Paul calls you a saint, he's not saying you're something super special, better than other Christians. He's saying you've been separated from the world. You're supposed to be separated from what the world is doing, verse 17. So the Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing that you have spoken, for you've now found grace in my sight, and I know you by name. And he said, please show me your glory. Moses says, okay, you want us to follow you, you want us to trust you, you want us to know that you're leading, show me who you are, God. Show me your glory, verse 19. Then he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no man will see me and live. Remember that. You cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live. Now, some people stop and say, well, that's not true. We saw the face of Jesus. We did. We saw the face of God in the form of a man. And people are going to say, well, there's other times where we saw this. We've never seen God in his full glory of what he truly is. So what happens? Verse 21. And the Lord said, here's a place by me and you shall stand on the rock. So it shall be while my glory passes by that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and will cover you with my hand when I pass by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Okay. So now keep that thought. My face shall not be seen. So then how are we supposed to see the face of God? Go with me now to Psalm 17, please. Psalm 17. One little verse, but I think it's an important verse. Psalm 17. Read verse 15 here with me. As for me, I will see your face in righteousness. The only way I can see the face of God is in righteousness. Now we can continue on this theme because Paul wrote that I, we have become the righteousness of Christ. Righteousness is a big fancy word that just means to be made right. So now jump back to Revelation. When it says in verse 4, they shall see his face, that's a big deal. If you were a good student of the Bible reading the book of Revelation for the first time 2,000 years ago, and you got to verse 4, they shall see his face, you would stop and say, that's been the goal of man all the way since back to the second book of the Bible, Exodus, to see the face of God. And we can't see the face of God because of our sin. We can't see it. But Psalm says that I will see your face in righteousness. Paul says that we have become the righteousness of Christ. So when I look at verse 4, to be able to see God's face, oh man, don't, don't overlook that verse. That's a huge deal. That you are able to look upon the face of God because you have been made right in Jesus Christ. And therefore you have all of eternity with Him. That's why in verse 5 it says they shall reign forever and ever. That's the amazing thing about heaven. Now we'll stop there real quick. Does anybody have any quick questions, comments on verses 1 through 5 before we move on to uh, verse 6 here? Alrighty, we're good. Oh, yeah, Megan. I believe so. I believe so. Um, it says in First John that we will be like Jesus, and that idea of the glorified body. Um, I believe that we will. I believe that we will. 
That's part of the closeness and the oneness that we have with the Lord. It says in 1 John 3, 2, Beloved, now we are children of God, has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, when God is revealed, Jesus is revealed, we shall be like him, for shall we see him, we shall see him as he is. So I believe we are. Nothing is going to be hidden up there in heaven. We are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We will have access to God the Father by his grace. We'll be there. So yeah, I do believe. I think it's going to be an amazing thing. Oh, I think we can hug him. I, some people don't like having people sit on their laps. That's God's choice. But um, I think Jesus would accept a hug. I don't think. We, I mean, you know, if you look back, I mean, look back to the nature of Christ. If you go through the Gospels, suffer not the little children to come to me. He said, put them on my lap. You know, I mean, the Bible uses all these analogies how God is God the Father. And, you know, even look at that passage we just read in Exodus. God used the symbolism of I'm going to put my hand over the rock protect you. So I have no doubt in my mind that there is going to be a closeness, a oneness there that we can't even imagine so that I think you can go up and just yes, hug them. So, it's an amazing thing. Yeah. I thought somebody else had a hand up. Yeah, John. Right. Right. And that's a wonderful thing when you look at that analogy once again of what light does. Light disperses darkness. And so that's why it says there's no night up there, there's no darkness, and God is the light. I'm reminded of what it says in John 1. This man came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of the light. That was the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. And that's that symbolism there of light. Jesus is light that comes in and disperses darkness, the darkness of sin, the darkness of this world. It's an amazing thing. Good point. I saw another hand up. Yeah, Ann. I don't believe they'll be sleeping either. No, I agree with you. I don't think there's going to be sleeping in heaven. And, and part of that is if you go to the Isaiah, it says that we serve a God that neither sleeps nor slumbers. So God doesn't need to sleep. Jesus slept on this earth because he was a human bodily form and his human bodily form got tired. But no, I don't see us being up in, in heaven saying, boy, it's been a really long day. I need to get some sleep. I don't see that. Now, maybe part of heaven is taking naps. I don't know. Maybe that's just the joy of it. But no, I do not believe that there's going to be any type of spiritual and or physical need to have our bodies rest and recharge. That's pretty neat when you stop and think about that. Anybody else have anything here before we move on? Yeah, Mary. I believe they did. Yeah. uh, Mary asked if Adam saw the face of God. You know, Genesis says that they walked with the Lord. Uh, You have to remember they were in a perfected form. Uh, Sin had not touched them. So... Yeah, I believe that they did have complete access to God. Complete access to God. And I think that's part of what was so devastating is being kicked out of the Garden of Eden. I mean, to have that access to God and then to not have that access to God, that's part of the reason why if you go back to Christ on the cross, when Jesus uh, you know, yelled out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
You know, a lot of people believe that was the time where Christ was really taking the punishment of sin and that there would become a separation between God the Father and Christ the Son. They've never had that separation before. So that idea of being forsaken, that, that's something that Christ had never had to go through before. Adam and Eve, one I think the most destructive things is, you know, coming out of the Garden of Eden and then feeling physical pain, uh, feeling emotional worry. We've we got to figure out how we're going to eat. But the spiritualness, they no longer got to walk with God. That's, that would be, be devastating. Anybody else have anything here before we move on? All right, let's go here. Uh, this, the rest of the stuff actually goes kind of quick because it's just some final notes here on what's going on verse 6. Then he said to me, these words are true, excuse me, are faithful and true, and the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show his servants the things which must shortly take place. Please remember in verse 6 that word for shortly. This goes all the way back to our first study in Revelation. This is where we get our English word for tachometer. If you have a tachometer in your car, it shows how fast your car is going. When your tachometer goes up, it doesn't necessarily mean your car is going faster. What this word is trying to say is when these events start happening, it's going to go quickly. It's going to, it's going to be very short. It's going to happen very soon. And this word is repeated numerous times here throughout the rest of the Bible. So when you take a look at this and say these things will shortly take place, John, you wrote this 2,000 years ago. Yeah, but when the ball starts rolling... It's going to come quickly. Verse 7, Behold, I'm coming quickly. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Now I, John, saw and heard these things. When I heard and saw, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel who showed me these things. And he said to me, See that you do not do that. For I am your fellow servant, and of your brethren, the prophets, and of those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. Now a couple of things here. Verses uh, 8 and 9. John just did the same thing a couple chapters ago. You know, he fell at the feet of the angel. He got so overwhelmed with what was going on. Human beings, we can struggle with this, people. We can really start to fall at the feet of the wrong things. And some of it starts to seem okay. Um, I've seen Christians worship at the altar of family. They make their wife and kids everything. Amen. Your wife and kids are very important, but Jesus is what you worship. That's the main thing. I've seen pastors start to worship at the altar of their church, that their church is everything. No, Jesus is everything. We just got to be careful. Sometimes angels, they're pretty good, but they don't deserve our worship. We just got to keep our worship for God. I love how the verse 9 ends. Worship God. You don't need to be more straightforward than that, John. Worship God. Now, what are we supposed to be doing here? Take a look at verse 7. Behold, I'm coming quickly. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Two words I want you to focus on in verse 7. Blessed and keep. Some of your translations may say heeds. God says you are blessed when you do what the book says. Blessed literally means, oh, how happy. You're happy when you do what God says. I'm just going to give you the simplest point I've ever seen for me. When I'm in the Word, doing what the Word says, I'm happy. When I'm not in the Word and I'm not doing what the Bible says, I'm generally not happy. That's how simple it is. When I get up, spend time with God, and make my days focus to be, Lord, I am yours, I want to serve you, and what does your word tell me to do? And I keep your words, I heed your words, I obey your words, I am blessed. I'm just blessed. It doesn't mean that everything goes the way I want, but there's a sense of blessing. When I get off God's path, I lose the joy, I lose the peace, I lose the blessing, I lose the happiness. So very simple. If you're here tonight or if you're listening to this message and you stop and you say, I'm not feeling really blessed right now. I'm not feeling the joy, the peace, the happiness. The follow-up question is very simple. Are you keeping the words of the Bible? Are you being obedient to what God says?
Because when we're obedient to what God says, things just go better. It's really that simple. Verse 10, he said to me, Do not seal the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. He who is unjust, let him be unjust still. He who is filthy, let him be filthy still. He who is righteous, let him be righteous still. He who is holy, let him be holy still. That's a really interesting verse. But this is a theme of the Bible that we as Christians seem to ignore. What he's saying in verse 10 is this. The book is open. People can read it. They can study if they want to. The gospel is being presented, verse 11. Some are going to accept it. Some are going to reject it. See, the thing is, when I start witnessing to people, he who is unjust, I don't want him to be unjust. I want him to be just. He who is filthy, I don't want him to be filthy. I'm, I'm trying to change him. And the Lord says, yeah, that happens between them and me. You, you can't make people change. And to be quite honest, verse 11, some people want to stay filthy. I was just reading in devotions the other day. They quoted John 5. At the beginning of John 5, Jesus goes up to this paralyzed, lame man and says, Do you want to be made well? Now, you would think the answer to that is very simple. Who would reject being made well? If you came in here and you were paralyzed, you were lame, and Jesus said, Do you want to be better? Would you have to think about it? No, you would immediately say, I want to be made well. The truth is, there are people that do not want to be made well. They're not. They are living a lifestyle that is not glorifying to God. It is not healthy for them spiritually, emotionally, or physically. They are stuck in sin. They are stuck in the slop. And if you go up to them and say, do you want to be different? Do you want to be made well? Not really. They want to stay where they're at. And some of them want to stay where they're at, but they want to complain about where they're at. They want to stay where they're at, but they want to tell you they really want to change. See, what verse 11 is telling me is the filthy are going to want to stay filthy. Now, when Jesus gets a hold of him, amen, there will be a change. We can't do that. We keep him just pointing in the right direction. He who is righteous, let him be righteous. Who is holy, let him be holy. Remember the example of the rich young ruler where he showed up to Jesus, and Jesus went through and basically laid out the gospel for him, if you will. The rich young ruler didn't want it, and the Bible says the rich young ruler went away sad. And we use this example a lot. Jesus didn't chase after him. The guy wanted it. Excuse me. The guy didn't want it. He left Jesus said, let it go. When you're out there sharing Christ with people, you're going to find out some people don't want it. They just don't want it. And Revelation is saying the book is open. They can have it if they want. Verse 12, behold, I'm coming quickly. There's our word again. When this happens, it's going to happen quickly. My reward is with to give to everyone according to his work. Now, you're going to see a few points here. This is just our final thoughts here as we get ready to the first thing. Verse 12, the reason you need to be ready for Christ returning is he's coming with rewards. You're going to be judged on what you did for the Lord. I'm not going to repeat the whole message, but a couple weeks ago we talked about the difference between the great white throne judgment that non-believers go through where they're judged and sentenced to hell. And then we talked about the uh, judgment seat of Christ where we as believers, where our works will be judged and will be rewarded for what we have done. So therefore, it's not about salvation, but it's about what did I do for the Lord, for those rewards, for those works, for Him. Verse 13, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Okay, God's trying to get a point across here. He told you in different languages, in three different ways, he's the beginning and the end. If he's the beginning and he's the end, guess what? You don't have to worry about the middle. That's what he's trying to tell you. If he said, I'm just the beginning, well, what's the end, Lord? I don't know. You should be scared. Um, If he's the beginning and he's the end, I don't have to worry about the middle. Someone one time used that analogy about planes and flying. As long as the takeoff and the landing are good, what happens in the middle really doesn't matter. You know what? The takeoff and the landing are what matters in your life. Get born into Jesus Christ, die into Jesus Christ. What happens in the middle? 
Once you get to heaven, you're not going to worry about it. So if he is the beginning and the end, the first and the last, the alpha and the omega, don't waste any moment of your time worrying about what's going on in the middle. We're back to this idea of obedience to the word. Verse 14, Blessed are those who do his commandments, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city. He is asking you to be obedient. Some of your translations may not say those who keep his commandments. It may have something in there in verse 14 about uh, keeping your clothes washed, washing the robes. It's the same idea. Keep yourself clean. This doesn't mean you're keeping yourself clean to get saved. Since you are saved, keep yourself clean. Since you are saved, do what's right. Since you are saved, walk obediently. This is not walk obediently to get saved. No, you are saved. You are born again in Jesus Christ. It changes how you live, how you act. It changes everything about you. If you say you're saved in Christ, but your life is not changing, then what did you get saved from? There's supposed to be an obedience in obeying. That's what he's saying in verse 14. Because there is a separation for all of eternity. Outside are dogs and sorcerers and sexual immoral and murderers and idolaters and whoever loves and practices a lie. Now, if you're a dog lover, verse 15 may bother you. He doesn't literally mean dogs. And I'm not getting into whether there's dogs in heaven. What it says in verse 15, dogs in the Bible is a way that he describes um, spiritually, if you will, backslidden, I shouldn't say backslidden, spiritually immoral people. It's a way that they describe people that do not have a heart and focus on the Lord. That's what it's talking about. It's an ongoing theme. Dogs are looked at as very dirty in the Bible. They were scavengers. They walked around and uh, just ate things and ate things they shouldn't put in their mouths. So this idea of this dog that it's not worried about being pure and righteous, it's a dog that's dirty. It's all of eternity. There's a separation for this. Verse 16, I, Jesus, has sent my angel to testify to these things in the churches. I'm the root and the offspring of David. That takes us all the way back to Isaiah 11, fulfilled prophecy. I'm the bright and morning star. And the spirit and the bride say, come. Let him who hears say, come. Let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take up the water of life freely. I tell you, I look at verse 17 and I see that whoever desires, let him take up the water of life freely. Salvation is open to anybody. You just have to want it. And it's free. You just... Have to want it. Boy, I hope we can have that heart to realize that's what we're here to do. For verse 18, I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. If anyone takes away from the words of this book of the prophecy, God shall take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. You don't want to mess with the book. Jesus said in John 1, he is the word. You don't want to mess with the word. When you're messing with the book, you're messing with the nature of Jesus. And you've got to remember, there's a great passage in Psalm 138. It's Psalm 138, 2. It says that God honors his word above his name. Think that one through. Chew on that for a little bit. God says, my word is more honored, more magnified, more glorified than my name. Okay, the name of God's a big deal. The name of God is how we are saved. When Jesus was being arrested in the garden and they asked, are you Jesus of Nazareth? Then he said, I am, which is taking you back to Exodus 3, where God said, I am. When he said, I am, what happened to all the soldiers? They fell down. The name of God knocks people down. The name of God brings salvation. But God says, my word is honored more than my name. So when we go and start changing the Bible in verses 18 and 19, that's a dangerous, dangerous thing. 
I can't stress to you enough, keep what you do biblical. If you can't find a verse to back up what you're doing or saying, that should be a really scary thing to you. Because we want to make sure it's all lined up with Scripture. Verse 20, he who testifies to these things says, surely I'm coming quickly. There's our word again, quickly. Jesus has been 2,000 years. Yeah, I know. So when it happens, it's happening quickly. Amen. Even so come, Lord Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. What a wonderful ending to a wonderful book. Amen means so be it. The way this book is ending is so be it. Everything we just read, let it happen. Let it happen. Great ending here where Christ is constantly reminding us, verse 20, I'm coming quickly. That idea of look at what's happening. Verse 12, I'm coming quickly. Verse 6, things must take place shortly. Be prepared. Be ready. There's a blessing in obedience to his word. There's a blessing in obedience to his commandments. If God has called us to do it, we want to do it. If we know how the book ends, since he is the beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega, the first and the last, we know how it ends. We want to be ready for it. We want to be prepared for it. And it should hopefully change how we live. That's the thing, guys. It should change how we live and all we do and say. Any final questions, comments about Revelation 22 before it goes up? John. I've run into that too. What, what is your answer to that? Anybody else got any other questions here? <laughs> My answer to that, which I wish you would ask me privately, um, the context of verse. Yeah, no, you're not sorry. I know you're not sorry. The context of verses 18 and 19 are talking about the book of Revelation. That's the context, because you can tell that, because it says right here if anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book talking about the book of Revelation. I do believe that you can make a case that Jesus said, I am the word, John 1. Jesus also said in the book of John, the whole book is written about me. So I do, and if Revelation is the revealing of Jesus Christ, we found that out back in Revelation 1, I think you can make a case that if you're messing with the word of God in general, you're asking for problems to start with. But the context of 18 and 19 are talking about Revelation. But you still don't want to mess with anything in the book. Yeah, yeah, you don't want to mess with anything in the book. I mean, if somebody came up to me and said, I retranslated John, but I didn't mess with Revelation, you're still on thin ice there, buddy. I wouldn't mess with that at all. Anybody else have anything here before we close up? Yeah, make it. I know what you mean. An actual Correct. We know right. So the truth is they don't want to change. And that's what this verse is saying. They don't want to change because if you wanted to change, you would change. Dawn's got this phrase that she's used in our 20 years of marriage. I'll come up to her and I'll say, Dawn, I want to talk to you about something. She goes, okay. And I'll say, listen, I don't want to get angry. She goes, well, then don't. <laughs> okay. 
I, I mean, what am I supposed to say to that? She's, it, we still do it. I still know what she's going to say. Uh, anything. I don't, I don't want to get upset. Then don't. I don't, I don't mean I don't. Then don't. I don't want to get worried about this. Then don't. And she, I mean, you got to know my wife. You think I make up a lot of these stories from the pulpit. I don't. She, she is that personality. So if somebody came up to Dawn and said, oh, I, I don't like the way my marriage is going. I don't like the way my life is going. I really want to change. Dawn would say, well, then do it. No one's stopping you. If you really want to change, you're going to change. And that's what verse 11 is saying. You want to be unjust? You're going to be unjust. You want to be filthy? You're going to be filthy. Now, somebody's going to come back and say, yeah, but it's so hard. And if I, yeah, it is. I get that it's hard. And I'm just going to go through the verses. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ Jesus who strengthens me. And we can go down the list. If you really want your life to be different in the Lord, then you're going to make those changes through God, through his power, through the Holy Spirit, through that. So that's what verse 11 is saying. So when people come up to me and, oh, James, I really want everything to be different. No one's stopping you. You want to go deeper in the Lord? Go deeper in the Lord. You want to go out and witness to more people? Then go witness to more people. You want to be a better husband? Then be a better husband. Nobody's stopping you. God has given you the power to do it. So, anybody else got anything here before we close up? All right, we're having a special, right, Ellen? So, uh, were you the mastermind of this? Yeah, I I think she was. I think she was. Uh, Ellen came up to me a few weeks ago and talked about wanting to finish off the study in Revelation with a special. And so they've been working on this, and I think this is a really neat thing to close us out with. And um, so we're going to give it over here to uh, the worship team, and they're going to go ahead and close us out with a worship song. And Marv, if you want to, then if you just want to close us out with a word of prayer, then okay?